Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion In this melting pot we live in Time to build a new system, unionize labor rights Highlight the issue, talking heads left is best The saga continues, continues The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. It is Friday, November 19th. It's Femme Friday. We have a great show today. We are going to be talking about what it's like being a foreigner in the U.S. and uh, pursuing the American dream and what does that actually represent. We'll be talking with uh, Rajika Bandri about that. Her uh, book is titled America Calling, A Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility. And then later we'll be talking to Lucy Pinson about Reforming the finance sector. What does that mean? She's the executive director and founder of Reclaim Finance. And then later we have a spicy, spicy panel with Julia Doubleday, who is in Chile right now as the elections are going down. You may have heard about the reforms that they're doing to their constitution. And then Janelle Jolly is going to be on as well. We're going to talk about some other news that's happening. Uh, Busy day in the news. Lots of strikes happening. It is going to be a fun show. All right. We will be right back with Rajika Bandri. All right, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Rajika Bandri is the author of America Calling, a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And and you know, this is you've, you've written several publications, and um, this seems to be a more personal one. Uh, curious, what what um, inspired you to write about this at this time? Thanks so much for having me on today. I'm delighted to be here. So. What inspired me was that I've been researching the trends of international students and immigrants coming to the U.S. for several years now as a researcher in this space. But it was becoming really clear to me that there's a lot of research around it. There's a lot of policy analysis, but that um, the average person does not really understand either what the experience of an international student looks like, or even what their value is uh, to the U.S. And that relationship between coming to the U.S. as an international student, the American dream and immigration is uh, really not well understood in the U.S. So while I've been a scholar of these issues for many years, and like you said, published extensively around it, I felt that that story had never been told and really needed to be told in all of its complexity. And then what I'll add is that I'd been thinking a lot about these issues for many years that, you know, that that no no one had ever really sort of narrated the story. And then um, the elections happened five or six years ago, and it became a very difficult climate, um, as you know, for immigrants in general in the U.S., but even for international students and, you know, I think the sector was dealt blow after blow by the previous administration. There were the travel bans and just overall a really a, a growing hostile climate towards really anybody from other countries and uh, cultures. And so at that point, I really felt that I could not stand by anymore and not not share the story, especially as someone for whom it had also been um, a lived experience of having been an international student myself, but also being a scholar of uh, some of those trends. So that was the main motivation behind the book. So in terms of um, 
what the, the international student community looks like. Like, what percentage of of students at a given college, and I'm, I'm sure this varies per college, but is is there like a quota? Do they have to uh, have a certain number? I know a lot of of private universities rely on bringing in international students who whose tuitions are, you know, usually more affordable and are not tethered to public financing in any way um, or or loans. Um, so how many students, uh, percentage-wise, of, of those who are going to traditional undergrad, let's say that? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I think you bring up several related points. So first off, I just want to say for your listeners, when we think about international students, we might not realize how large that number is overall on a national um, scale and what the magnitude is. And we're really talking about over 1 million individuals who are attending American campuses across the entire country from big cities to smaller towns. And you're absolutely right that the proportion can vary. And at the undergraduate level, you know, we see a real variation anywhere from 5% of the student body, in some cases up to uh, 20 to 22% of the student body. Um, on average, I would say it's about uh, it's about 5% of overall higher education enrollment in the U.S. So proportionally, it's not that large. I mean, there's this myth out there that, oh, international students are coming in and they're swooping in and taking away all our college seats. But again, proportionally, if you look at it, it's only about 5%. Now, the big... Okay. Uh, the big exception here is is at the graduate level, and especially in the science and engineering fields where international students do make up a much larger proportion of graduate study in the U.S. and certainly in the sciences and um, and engineering. But that's sort of kind of the range that we see. And, and when Trump's uh, policies came into effect, how much did it nip, I mean, whether folks who were already studying here had weren't able to come back or um, we're just afraid of, of uh, it's an investment. I mean, it's a major investment um, in your life to, and financially, uh, to come to the U.S. And, and go to these institutions. How much did it hurt uh, the education space? So it had a significant impact. Um, I, I'll get to the COVID piece in a second because that's been more recent, but in many ways, I sort of refer to it as a, as the perfect storm for the U.S. higher ed sector, because certainly um, the impact of the previous administration was quite significant, not just on the immediate numbers, but more importantly, on this global perception that the U.S. Were, was no longer keeping its doors open to talent and to young minds from around the world, and that reputation that it had always had as sort of this beacon of knowledge and learning was really beginning to fade. And so, um, so I think the reputational damage has been more long-lasting. And even though we have a different administration now that's very positive about welcoming international students, it's going to take a while to repair those global relationships in terms of an actual impact. Certainly, um, over the past uh, four years, we've actually seen declining numbers of international students uh, coming to the U.S. The new flow of students, which is the new number that comes in each fall, has been slipping for each of the prior four to five years. Mm. And then with COVID last year, so that's why I called it the perfect storm, where we had these declining numbers due to 
broader political and social factors. And then on top of that, the pandemic, where there was just new data released this Monday from the Open Doors report, which which I led for many years until a couple of years ago. And that's shown a drop of um, 46% enrollment to the U.S., which is the largest drop the U.S. has seen in 72 years. It's larger than even anything that happened after 9-11. So there's been some recovery in the most current fall semester, but we're really talking about a huge impact and rupture to all of higher education, to the U.S. economy, um, because international students also, as you alluded to earlier, really impact the bottom line of U.S. colleges and universities. And and according to one estimate, and I've noted this here, um, according to one estimate, the economic impact has dropped has dropped by 27% last year down to 28.4 billion from a prior high. So we're really seeing a big impact um, of these falling numbers. So uh, do are we hearing from, I mean, public, uh, private institutions, our uh, colleges are already, um, you know, raising tuitions. And we we know that uh, the cost of going to these schools is already at record levels. It's It's almost you know, hard to even process how, how uh, expensive it is now to go to a private college or university. Um, are they worried about their bottom line? And, and are they, uh, are, is there a conversation about them raising tuition rates or other, other fees to make up for this difference? Yeah, I mean, the cost of the U.S. higher education is um, is really very high for domestic and international students alike. So it's a it's a real challenge. And you're absolutely right. It's had a huge impact on the bottom lines of institutions or the decline has had a huge impact on institutions that are really relying on that revenue from foreign students. However, I will say that the impacts have been quite variable. Uh, what we've seen is that institutions with a big brand, I mean, if you're looking at NYU and looking at others or the Ivy Leagues, they have probably not suffered as much because um, even when numbers are falling overall, those are sort of the institutions that students are really um, buying for. So many of them have actually either either their enrollments have held steady or declined just a little bit and they've been able to uh, withstand that that small drop. There are others for whom, um, you know, it may have cost them almost uh, the entire international student population. So I don't know that there is talk of, uh, uh, oh, I don't, let me put it this way. I don't know that the sector can bear tuition rates being raised any further, but I think what institutions are having to do, both for domestic and international students, is to really think about new and different models of how they're going to offer an education to uh, to students. It already began to happen last year when many students couldn't physically arrive in the U.S., which is partly why we've seen such a big drop, that institutions had to really pivot and think about, well, what are some of those newer models um, through which we are going to continue to sell our brand, um, sell our education to students, again, whether it's American students or even those uh, abroad. It's fascinating. Um, so, is there is there are there campaigns now that uh, COVID seems to be on the decline, at least in the states? Um, doesn't mean that you know there aren't surges in certain areas, but 
uh, the, the rules that are put in place are obviously you need to be vaccinated, double vaccinated to visit if you're coming from um, certain countries, not all of them. Um, but I mean, is it, did, does it seem like there is an effort to bring folks back? Yes, absolutely. There's a huge effort. Um, I think politically and socially, there's been a real shift in the climate and overall global relations um, ever since the election last fall. I will also say that for the international community, it's meant a lot that uh, America's vice president is herself the daughter of two former international students where her mother came to the US as a student from India, her father was from Jamaica. And that I think has catapulted this issue into a whole new level uh, in the public eye than ever before. So I think um, students are being welcomed back with open arms. I think the administration has all the right intentions. Um, campuses have been working overtime to welcome students back. Um, there was a huge visa backlog this summer across uh, embassies across uh, the world. But I know that many of uh, the consulates worked overtime to clear that visa backlog. And for example, for Indian students, um, there was a big spike in visa issuances uh, that even exceeded a number from a few years ago. So mm -hmm. students are back. They're coming back. Um, there's been a big uptick this fall. I should say some recovery from last year. Of course, it's going to take some time for things to bounce back, um, bounce back completely. But certainly, it's moving in the right direction. Now, um, I found this interesting because you know visa laws have have shifted quite a bit um, outside of university over the last hundred years. You know, when when my grandparents came. It was Ellis Island, you know, and they were refugees too. So it was, it was a little bit different, but they didn't have to have money in their pocket and they didn't need to know anybody who had money in their pocket. Now, so much of, of the, you know, those who are able to get visas in the States, uh, coming to the States outside of education is, relies on how much money that person has and, and simultaneously how much money uh, friends or family, somebody in their immediate can, can sponsor them if something were to go awry. So you're seeing a different type of a wealthier type of individual immigrate to the states now when they um, those who are able to get visas. Now education, while it's there are a lot of folks who are from the middle class who can who can make it, um, you know, outside of the confines of a traditional visa, they they come on a, an education visa. But if it's still expensive, it's still much more expensive to go to these institutions, uh, far more than it is if if you're going to them um, and you're from the states. Are you seeing a? Is it still the middle class that's from you know India, middle class from from Mexico, and middle class from wherever um, folks come from that that seem to be getting a hold of these visas, these education visas? I should say. I think there's been a real shift. Um, there was a time until. Um, some decades ago, where you're absolutely right, the idea of a overseas education was really the privilege of the elite and the wealthy. Um, I would argue even the time that I came to the U.S. in the 90s, um, it was still something very much that the middle class and upper middle class aspired to. In my case, I came as a graduate student. And I absolutely would not have been able to come if I had not been offered a teaching teaching assistantship and a partial tuition waiver 
from my department at my university. And even then, I will honestly say, and this is documented in my book, and I on how much of a struggle it was for to spend for my family to spend every dollar for whether it was taking the SAT or the GRE or the application fees for each university I wanted to apply to. What's shifted from that time is that private loans have become more available in many key sending countries. This has certainly happened in my country of origin, India, where over the past several years, we've really, you could almost say that um, it's there's now greater access where students from um, different backgrounds can aspire to come to a country like the U.S. and study. But it is not easy because what's happening is that the families, the families are taking on the loans on behalf of the students and in many cases are pledging as collateral even their family home or other assets. So um, all of this is to say that it is by no means easy for many students from uh, developing countries or the global south, um, there's a lot riding on that opportunity to study abroad. And even when we've seen sort of waves of uh, young Chinese students come to the US whose families uh, found it more affordable, um, it's happened because families were really sort of investing in that opportunity. So it, it's, it was really being seen not, not just as this one individual going abroad to study, but really this one individual um, representing many of the families and, and generations worth of aspirations, if you will. So I, I certainly think more students are accessing it now, but it's by no means easy. And I'll just share that, you know, recently there's been a proposal floated of, and I won't go into the minutiae because that's boring, but, you know, to raise XYZ fees for international students, or let's just, oh, what was 200? Let's just turn it into $500. And all of these proposals being made with, uh, with you know, this very flawed idea that, well, if they can afford to come to study in the US in the first place, then surely an additional 500 shouldn't matter. But it does. It really does matter because every dollar matters. Right. And, you know, students are making really key decisions based uh, based on that affordability factor. And and once um, you know, do, do a lot of these students once they 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 graduate or or get their masters or wherever they're coming from, is there sort of an expectation, generally speaking, that they'll be able to find a job here in the states? I think many students are. Um, aspiring to gain at least some work experience. And I think that that's very natural. And it's not just about being an international student. When we when we try and guide American students as well, or any students, that's what we say, right? When you get your degree, try and get some applied experience, go get an internship, do something, apply your learning. So it's very much the same, I think, for international students that if they've come out to the U.S., they've uh, gone through a period of study. It could be, you know, four years for an undergrad. It could be six or seven years for a Ph.D. Um, and there are opportunities through a special through a special program for them to stay on for a while and work while they're still under their, their student uh, visa. But I think that amongst many students and you know this is where we see some variations of students from you know different parts of the world that not all international students are alike but for many Asian students uh, coming from Asia we do see that many of them stay on uh, not just for that brief period of uh, post-study work but many of them stay on decide to immigrate and then go through that pathway of you know 
once having been a student and then mm-hmm. kind of what's what's considered the skilled immigrant pathway if you know applying for an H-1B work visa and then that might lead to a green card and um, that was you know that was certainly my pathway it's not the pathway for every person but the reality is that amongst uh, many uh, students from Asia there is a very high sort of uh, what might one might call a stay rate or, or the rate of immigrating to the U.S. And, and, you know, hopefully post-Trump and, and with the pandemic, there'll be more opportunities. I mean, this is, it's it's interesting. I mean, we're, we have these very large conversations about immigration, you know, policies in the States, but I I, I think folks aren't really conscious of the the context of how immigration and education are so intertwined. And so you've, you've really highlighted this at a moment when, uh, <laughs> I mean, p- pandemic-wise, who knows where the conversation about immigration is going to go. Um, but... It's super interesting conversation. Um, hopefully, you know, as as COVID rates go down globally, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to have a more robust conversation about how our policies, our our visa policies, um, are frankly international security. I mean, it's it's all related to national security and internationalism um, in in very different ways, but. You write about this in your book. <laughs> it's yes, different. absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of the big arguments I make in the book, that this is ultimately about diplomacy and it's ultimately about soft diplomacy between the U.S. and, and other countries and that international students have really uh, played a key role in it, uh, not just recently, but for, you know, almost 200 years. Uh, so, wow. yeah. Wow. Well, Dr. Rajika Bandari, uh, author of America Calling, a foreign student in a country of possibility, I uh, really appreciate you, you joining us. We will have the link up for your book so people can check it out. Uh, try to buy it wherever you, you know, a, a, a good, not on Amazon. Let's just say that. <laughs> Simple <laughs> enough. Anywhere but Amazon. That's the new rule. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thank you for joining Thank us. you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. All right. We will be right back to talk about finance. Can finance be reformed? Reclaim finance. This is a whole new concept I'm, I'm super curious about. I'm sure you are too. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. So you may recall um, I was in Scotland uh, before the COP26 conference. I was in Edinburgh for the TED Countdown Climate Summit. Uh, I was the first that they've ever done. And there were, you know, fascinating speakers for sure. Uh, there was a lot of action happening on the ground there. But our next guest gave this brilliant speech on the main stage, which is hard to do. Uh, and she, I think, changed the way I have ever looked at this issue, um, the way that you see money and how money flows and how money affects climate. And I, I was really blown away by her talk. And uh, I'm, I'm just so grateful that we can now have this conversation, especially post-COP26, uh, to discuss her work. Lucy Pinson is the executive director and founder of Reclaim Finance. Uh, she founded Reclaim Finance in 2020 after several years of, of campaigning on the responsibility of financial institutions and social, environmental, and climate just, injustice issues. Uh, Lucy, thank you so much for joining us. Let's welcome her. Thanks for having me. So Lucy, um, it, just for background for folks to know, you you are French uh, and and the U.S., I don't think it's a secret. <laughs> we have a little bit of an issue with capitalism um, and being able to rein in on capitalism and have any sort of regulation. And I think folks 
at least in our country, are are growing incredibly um, uh, incredibly anxious and and nervous about our ability to hone in on income inequality, but simultaneously on the climate crisis. And uh, that can be shown through our latest Build Back Better bill that was just passed today, how much of, of any sort of regulation was stripped out of that because of a few interests. So when there are solutions that are presented that are outside of the normal confines of lobbying and, and regulation, uh, it really piques my interest. And you gave this wonderful speech at TED Countdown um, so I, I, I wanted to share it with our audience <laughs> and hopefully learn from you. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your background and what led you into this space and, and what you're doing? Sure. Um, what I'm doing, it's basically, I'm, uh, fighting with big financial institutions. Um, my objective is to decarbonize, uh, finance, uh, because there would be no transition to water. 1.5 degrees world um, if we don't stop financing or insuring or investing into fossil fuels and other polluting sectors. So my job is to push, uh, to put a lot of pressure on financial institutions and on the regulatory side as well to make sure new rules are being adopted in order to and push financial institutions to stop financing the bad stuff and basically increase the financing to the good stuff. And I started doing so because when I, I, I've been an activist for a long, long time, um, mostly for social justice. And then I realized that obviously environmental issues and, and climate issues are so much connected to social issues. And I'm and I bumped into one organization named Friend of the Earth Friends, which was uh, looking at uh, what our banks in France were financing. And I found it like a very interesting way of finding a specific issue instead of looking at a specific project or a specific company. You look at who is actually financing this project or this company, making it possible to operate and I found it very strategic because if you are good in maths you will realize that we have thousands and thousands of projects that we need to stop to prevent from being built and we also have thousands of projects that we need to close down in an organized manner um, to make it just for the workers and it's a it's a huge huge work and we don't have the time to do that to go one project after another project or one company after one company and when you dig a little bit, you realize that these projects or these companies are mostly financed by around 30 big banks worldwide, JP Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, but also the French banks that have been uh, very high um, in, in financing the fossil fuel industry. Uh, something that people don't know that we have in France, the first biggest banking sectors worldwide. And we do have Amundi or we do have AXA. So we do have big financial institutions that uh, contribute to shape the world uh, around us. And you do realize also when you look at these projects that I was mentioning that they are at least, uh, that they are um, even a, a smaller number of insurers supporting them and making them possible. So um, it makes sense to, instead of looking at these thousands of projects, you look at these thousands of financial institutions that need to change and to make a big impact. And that's how I started uh, back in 2013. So, so 
reforming finance and 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 really having them divest from fossil fuel companies. I mean, the divestment movement has has grown, you know, grown in traction, uh, especially with public. Uh, institutions, universities, and and maybe even in some cases, um, uh, you know, cities, pension funds, for instance, uh, they're starting to make a little bit of traction in, in some places in the U.S. But it's hard because finance is very powerful. And uh, as much as finance is reliant on quarterly profits, they sure act like they rely on these like long-term plans. How do you get them to move? How do you get them to to change their strategies when it's working so well? Sure, um, indeed. Like, and and some strategies are working, and I will tell a bit, a bit about it. But first, to say that um, today um, there is a lot of greenwashing going on, and I think the last the letters COP twenty six gave us a good example of of what is going on. Nobody is uh, denying the climate crisis, um, at least not in Europe. Uh, and every everybody want to every financial institutions want to position itself as a big uh, um, player in the fight against climate change. But in fact, uh, indeed, as you said, they are committing to long term targets, achieving carbon neutrality by 2050. But they are not doing the necessary. Uh, they're not taking the necessary step to make it possible to achieve these long term targets. Meaning, they are still supporting the development and the expansion of the fossil fuel industry while the International Energy Agency made it very clear that to achieve uh, our climate target, we need to stop doing so. So there is a lot of, of things to to be to, to work on. Um, however, some strategy have been uh, successful in the past um, in pushing financial institutions to adopt robust policies on coal. And it's true, when I started back in 2013, um, I decided to go after uh, um, after big, big banks in France that were financing the coal industry and that were among the top 15 biggest financiers of this uh, coal mining and coal power sector. And I was thinking, hmm, I feel very small uh, in front of these uh, financial institutions. But actually, you can find a good recipe to make them move. First, you need to... Um, identify very smart demands and you need to um, give them the right incentive to to act uh, and finally obviously public pressure and it's it's, it's very uh, needed so the first thing is very important um, usually when we want to change the world we start with a big big ask um, uh, I want financial institutions to stop financing fossil fuels. And that's the ask that we are campaigning on. And it's not going to work, obviously, because it's too big. It's too much. And so we need to identify something which is specific and measurable and achievable and, 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 and relevant and, and time-bound. So something that we can realistically achieve in um, in 12 to 18 months uh, in order to keep uh, the momentum going on um, and in order to be in capacity to achieve it and then go to no, another objective. So when I started back in 2013, I didn't ask French banks to stop financing coal. I asked one bank to stop financing one big project. And I started with this insane project in Australia named the Alpha Coal Mine, um, which we are not only the 
uh, threatening the climate, but also the Great Barrier Reef um, in, in Australia. And uh, we campaigned for a little bit more than a year, and we finally pushed this bank to stop. So then was a big question, what's next? Wow. And then we go to our second objective and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. So we moved then several banks to get out of several projects and then all the banks to commit to stop financing any nuclear mine, any nuclear plant, and then how, adopt. How? The how are you things. able to move them that way? I mean, that one, uh, we, you know, we've had fights like the Keystone XL fight, and mm. we're just trying to pressure lawmakers to, to, to stop it. And, you know, lawmakers are obviously much more responsive to constituents, but but even then it's it's hard. You know, they, they'll cancel one, but then they'll continue a bunch of other pipelines. Um, how are you able to to achieve that? It's It seems... You know, they could easily just get away with not paying attention <laughs> and, and moving forward. So the big, the big issue, as you said, is um, if we stop one project, then we need to transform this win into a bigger demand and, and to make a bigger win because we don't have uh, the time to only prevent one project and let another project being built next door. Um, and, 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 and to do that, it's... Uh, when you are campaigning against um, against bank and, and 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 you push them, first of all, you you start discussing also with the people internally and with um, about um, why calls an issue, for example. And so you start convincing people. Either you convince them that code is something that they need to let it go, um, and then you find there is a right reasons to push the banks to move, or the people to get moving internally, and then you get a commitment from the banks that. That this coal project is something bad, but then you can use that as an argument to say, if you acknowledge that this coal project is bad, you should acknowledge that all the other coal projects are as bad as this one. So there is, and then you can push them to, it's a little bit like a trap, I would say. Like if they acknowledge something is not good, you can push them to, to, to apply the same, uh, uh, the same position to the, to the other projects. And, and and actually, the more you do that, and the more you push the banks to also change its mindset as an, as an institutions, because they will realize actually that um, it's not so bad to stop financing something. It's not too much. That there are many other opportunities to to be made in the world, uh, financial opportunities, and that just that's in doing so, they are, you are also pushing them because there are, I mean, sorry, there are a lot of internal issues in a financial institution that will prevent them to move that are not necessarily because they love coal, but because they are afraid of losing too much business or because they have too much, too many stuff internally that are involved in a specific sector and they will need to uh, find them another job or another portfolio of clients, etc. etc. And by moving step by step, you are actually making it possible each time for the financial institutions to do it. And at the same time, they do realize it wasn't too bad. And actually, I have um, an interest in positioning my institutions as an institution which is doing the right thing. Because today, the majority of the population, the majority of my clients and the majority of my um, staff is actually very concerned about climate change. And if I want to maintain and to keep my staff and my clients and my um, and the general public happy, I will need to move and I can get some profits back from that. So I could get a good brand from it. 
Are they using this as a form of greenwashing, though? Like, so, oh, look, at we pulled out of this one project, but we're still doing all these other projects over here. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, you if you look at the French banks, for example, French banks are the best policy on coal, but they are heavily financing the expansion of the oil and gas sectors worldwide. Or you get AXA last week or two weeks ago, which uh, adopted a new policy on oil and gas, which is still allowing the insurers to insure more than 50% of the uh, oil and gas fields that are on the table right now. So they are clearly failing on their pledge to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. So, yes, obviously, they're not going to... There is a sense of when they're positioning themselves publicly or branding themselves as responsible climate-aligned insurers, there is a bit of greenwashing, but I still prefer them from... I mean, I still prefer them not insuring the coal sector than insuring the coal sector. So at the end of the day, we need to think, what is our objective to solve the climate issues or to convince every financial institutions um, morally to have done the, the good thing? I mean, we just need to think about that. I don't care why they are doing something. I, I, I just want them to do something. Exactly. To do the, the, the so right are, thing. Are you finding certain projects in certain countries that they're financing, um, wherever the banks are, I mean, many of these banks are so multinational now that it's 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 even hard to, to mm-hmm. root, you know. But are there projects in certain countries that you're more likely and more capable of stopping than other countries? I would say first that it's very important to have concrete examples of projects uh, because it's very hard to personally relate to something which is abstract. And when you speak about 1.5 degrees world or 2 degrees world, or you speak about coal and the, uh, oil and gas, and um, it looks very theoretical for, for the people uh, and for the people inside the bank as well. So... Uh, to have specific example of projects, make it simple to put a concrete, I mean, it gives concrete example of how does uh, uh, this industry impacts uh, the people locally or pollute the environment, it's strong, et cetera. So it makes it much, much easier for people to get on board, to join the fight, to support petition if there is a petition or to support the demand. And it makes it harder also for the bank to actually dismiss its responsibility when there is a direct link between what the bank is doing and, and a specific um, project. And here I would say there is, um, as a campaigner, um, the worse the project is, the better it is. I would say that's very sad to say, but that's the truth because it's allowed to give like a wake-up call. Um, so it always need to make we always need to make sure that to win this project bring us very close if we don't get it for, at the same time to pushing the banks to, from, to commit to stop financing the whole industry, not only this project, because as you say, you will, um, there is no time to do that. It was fine in, back in 2013 when I started because the responsibility of financial institutions on climate wasn't even agreed. I mean, it wasn't something like with a consensus on. So we needed to, to, to start with one project and then two and then 10 and then get bigger and bigger. But now we are in 2021 
uh, also financial industries acknowledging its responsibility in tackling climate change. And we can go much further. So just using projects to make it concrete, but looking or making always sure that um, that the banks commit to stop financing the world as uh, a world sector. For example, right now in the US, you have many banks that are committing to stop financing or to to no, no longer provide or to not uh, provide project financing for projects in the Arctic refuge in North America. But they are still financing a lot of um, projects and mostly the companies that are developing new projects in Arctic in general, not in the refuge, but in other places. So that's clearly hypocrisy. And when we use our Arctic refuge example, we need to make sure that there is bigger um, demand at the same time, which is told to the banks and that the bank will actually uh, commit to no longer finance companies that are clearly not transitioning, but are opening new projects, putting the climate and the people at risk. Um, so that's very important. But then I would not say it's, it's easier in one country or another. Something which is very important is to articulate the finance strategy with other strategies. So we don't fight against um, a specific project if there is no mobilization on the ground. Um, because we are also working in solidarity with the people. So if the people like a very bad project, we are not going to focus on this project. But if they actually um, in the streets uh, blocking or calling the company or the financial institutions to withdraw from a specific project, here we can intervene and it make it like more powerful to actually have these different strategies operating at the same time. To, and on top of that, you can add like some legal strategies and other types of um, activities to uh, undermine uh, the capacity for the company to bring a specific project forward. So we are only doing one piece of the puzzle. Lucy, this is so fascinating. Um, are, are you operating in multiple countries or is it basically, I mean, your, your, your project is obviously very international, but mm-hmm. do you have operations in multiple countries? Can people support you in any way? So we are mostly like, the team is mostly in France, uh, mm-hmm. even if we do have someone in the Bay and San Francisco and we do have someone in London and, and in Switzerland. Um, however, uh, we do tackle uh, many financial institutions around the world um, and we do operate in networks. So we have a great um, uh, uh, network and, and numbers of partners to work with. In the US, for example, we do work closely with the Stop the Money Pipeline uh, mm-hmm. campaign or the Rainforest Action Network mm-hmm. in particular. Um, and the BlackRock Big Problem campaign, etc. So we do work with them in order to tackle as uh, many financial institutions as possible. Um, and there's several ways to, to help us, obviously, um, to, to, to follow us online and to support every kind of action that is very important. Um, just signing the petitions can have a, a, big, uh, a big impact and also taking care, I mean, there are a lot of uh, online ways or to 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 take action to in and it's it's powerful as soon as it's coordinating in a broader campaign, um, and that can be done from anywhere in the world. So that's great. And um, but then obviously um, it's every time. I mean, in a movement, you need a lot of 
resources, not only financially, even if finance always helps, and that's clearly a a way to to support us. But I would say a lot of resources different different skills from the people, people who are good in in logistics, people who are good in maths, people who are good in... um, I would even say cooking, you know, when you do organize like a big disobedience action. You need oh, yeah. To, and then you need some people to cook in order to feed the activists on yes, the ground. Yes, that's very so, true. So the movement is very, very diverse. And and one way to support it is just to get in touch with our organization on the ground and, and say what you like to do so you find it. Your, your space in it. Wonderful. Well, we're going to put your link up so folks can follow you. Lucy Pinson, she's the founder and executive director of Reclaim Finance. Thank you so much for joining us. I know the time difference is, is tough too, so we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we will be right back after the break with our fabulous panel talking about the elections in Chile and much, much more. Well, 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 it's that time of the day when I talk about my lovely experiences with Sunset Lake CBD. My mom is in town right now because we're going into Thanksgiving, and uh, she showed up with a package full of all sorts of products from Sunset Lake CBD. My new favorite <laughs> is their lotion. They have this new lotion, and it is it smells divine. It has It's jasmine-infused, but I get a lot of aches and pains. I hurt my hip the other day. I know I talk about my aches and pains all the time, but I really do get a lot of aches and pains. I'm a bad sleeper. I do yoga. And so sometimes when you do all these things regularly, you can wear it on your body, especially as it ages. Um, So this Sunset Lake CBD has this new lotion out. And even though I got a massage, my hips still hurt, but I put that lotion on and it has Arnica and CBD and it smells like jasmine. It's like being at a spa. Uh, and you feel immediately better because Arnica is a pain relief. You can either ingest Arnica or you put it on yourself topically. So the combination of the two, CBD and Arnica and the smell, were amazing. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company. It is completely employee-owned. They took a farm, as I'm sure you know, in Vermont that used to be a Ben and Jerry's farm, and they diversified it by growing premium hemp. And all of their products, whether it's gummies or tinctures or salves or their coffee, it's all designed to help you with your your stress, your aches, and your pains. They also help uh, dogs too. Bijou the dog is here with me, and Bijou the dog gets a lot of anxiety when the humans leave. And so there are now dog biscuits that humans can eat too. I heard that Sam Cedar likes to eat them. He's weird. Uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, Sunset Lake CBD is not just a great company that diversified uh, this this great farm in in Vermont, but they are in, when you're supporting them, you're actually investing in rural economies, and they invest in their workers. Their minimum wage is fifteen dollars an hour. The majority of their company is owned by the employees, and on top of that, they support independent media like our show and the Majority Report and the David Pakman Show. It's really a very well thought out company, very intentional with everything, and they're just a joy to work with too. Uh, but if you would like to try some of their products, now is the time. You can type in Nomi, N O M I, at sunsetlakecbd.com and you get 20% off of your order. Type in Nomi, N O M I, sunsetlakecbd.com and you will get 20% off of your entire order. This is a big deal. All right. We'll be right back with our amazing panel. 
right. Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. It's Femme Friday. Love Femme Friday. I really love this Femme Friday because we're touching on some stuff that I got to say, I don't think any other show or channel touches on this. I'm pretty sure one other show will. Uh, and of course, that's because one of the hosts of the show is here joining us straight from Chile, where there are elections happening. Uh, we have Julia Doubleday. She is deputy director of committee, and she is a regular on the committee program, uh, was a big part of Beto O'Rourke's uh, 2018 campaign and Bernie Sanders' campaigns. And of course, Julie Oliver, she was her campaign manager in Texas's 25th district. Janelle Jolie is here. She is the host of What's Left to Do. Welcome back, Janelle. Hey, Thank you all right, so I want to start off because, um, you know, Chile, like some pretty transformative stuff is happening in Chile right now. You uh, y- 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 got yourself down there um, via Mexico. <laughs> Chile yeah, has been. Mexico. And, uh, it's a very hard process to get in the country right now because they take COVID very, very seriously, which is a good thing. I feel very safe here. Everyone is vaccinated, like double vaccinated. And everyone's still wearing masks, like everywhere, even outside. And they take your temperature when you go in anywhere. So it's like super. Yada, 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 whatever. Tell us about the election. (laughs) Yada, yada. (laughs) We only have so much time. Listen, we're like. Okay, yes, yes. You want to learn about Um, COVID, go to another network. (laughs) So, I mean, I think the thing we're seeing here in Chile is uh, similar to what we're seeing all around the world, which is the collapse of the center the lack of faith in institutions and the sort of uh, waning power of the political establishment and of moderatism, of moderate politics. So for a long time, um, when there was this idea that over time the status quo improves, maybe it doesn't improve fast enough, but like over time things change gradually, things get better. And I think the last 30, 40 years have really put the lie to that. And we're beginning to, the check has come due for the really massive amount of industrialization and massive amount of consumption, massive amount of um, just taking and taking and um, destroying and destroying with like no end in sight and no thought of any kind of consequences. We've always had this um, sense um, as defenders of a capitalist uh, economy that growth is good and you have to keep growing, and not growing is is dying. Mm-hmm. And there's no acknowledgement of like resources and the planet being a thing that can run out of stuff, you know. So like we've we've come up against this brick wall when we talk about like the con- the contradictions of our modern age collapsing in on each other. It is this brick wall of like, yeah, like I I'm really into capitalism. Everyone can have everything they want and. And more people having more stuff means other people get more stuff. And it just means everyone gets more stuff forever. It's basically just a gigantic pyramid scheme. Um, and the ch- the bill is coming due on a lot of that stuff we've been doing. So, you know, so, we've been like, oh, we can, we can use as much water as we want. And now all of a sudden with the climate crisis, it's like, well, maybe we should use a little less water. Like, so, so, so what does this mean in terms of the Constitution? I mean, this is yes. a, a Constitution that was written after Pinochet, very influenced by Pinochet folks yes. if i'm correct right. so and like yeah. let's so get into electoral stuff here like what's what is the constitutional yeah. situation tell us about like all the crazy candidates and the spider-man stuff and the dog the Spider-Man and, stuff. yeah i'll get to yeah. spider-man okay so there's actually it's two amazing. two and really three major things that are happening here in chile so 
Sunday is the presidential election. That is independent of the Constitutional Convention. Both of those things are super historical. Um, but the Constitutional Convention is where they are delegates, which were elected by the public, are rewriting the Chilean Constitution and throwing away the old Constitution. The old Constitution, as you mentioned, was written under Pinochet. It was also written with the help of Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys who came down here to help enshrine property rights and enshrine the right of corporate actors and private actors to own the land and water and do whatever they wanted, um, you know, with the resources here. So I was just interviewing a Chilean, sorry, a Chilean delegate um, to the convention, and she was explaining that over the last few decades, there's been tons and tons of activism and attempts to roll back some of the stuff that happened under the dictatorship. But because the underlying document is so clear and so legally binding around what can and can't be done about public resources, there's been no way to make really um, lasting and structural change to how resources and food and water are managed in Chile. So this is a huge issue. This all sort of comes to a head. Um, you know, it's been broiling, broiling for the last decade or so. Um, in 2018 to 2019, um, there was this really massive protest movement. So it was like people were in the streets constantly. They became very violent. The police were shooting people with rubber bullets. And um, there's actually, you'll see a lot here, graffiti of an eyeball because over 400 people lost their eyes in the protests. So it's become sort of symbolic of um, you know, the people who struggled and, you know, some were killed. A lot of people lost an eye. Um, many, many people were held in prison with sort of like shades of the authoritarian dictatorship, which is still very present in people's minds. Um, so as that process continued to um, worsen, continued to become more and more central to the public's daily life, um, there started to grow this really organic movement from the feminists and from the LGBT community and from um, all sorts of social justice organizations saying, "We, you know what the real problem is, is this constitution. Like, as long as we have this constitution, you know, the, from the education side, from the pension side, none of this is really going to change because it's mm -hmm. written by Milton Friedman. <laughs> like, it's written to be neoliberal. Um, so... That became the big movement out of the protest was we need to write a new constitution. Uh, there is a mechanism to do that in Chile. Eventually, there was so much pressure. Uh, there was a public referendum that said, do you want us to write a new constitution? The public voted yes. Then last year, there was another round of elections for the public to choose what delegates they want to rewrite the constitution. So it's a few hundred delegates from all over the country, and they all have to work together for nine months to a year to write the new constitution. So that's the process that's happening right now. Um, and they, let's name some of these folks, because they. I remember when these elections were happening, I don't know, Janelle, if you were watching this, but it was like, what? <laughs> I, I also love it, but also, right. what? <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll take you down a little, yeah, side street here about um, some of the very interesting characters that were a part of the, the protest movement and then also became a part of the convention. Um, so the woman I interviewed today, her name is, uh, Barbara Sepulveda and she, um, she's a really fantastic, she's a constitutional lawyer. She's a feminist. She was elected. Um, some of the other people that were elected became famous through their 
antics, essentially. So there is a woman who was known for going to all the protests in this big Pikachu costume. They call her Aunt Pikachu. And she's really beloved here. You'll also see a lot of Pikachu graffiti around, and that's a reference to her. Um, I actually don't remember her real name because everyone calls her Aunt Pikachu. Um, But she did get elected to the Constitutional Convention. In the convention, does she show up in the costume? I don't think she does go to the convention in the costume now. (laughs) But you know what? I'm trying to interview her, so that will be my first... My first question will be, why the Pikachu costume? But I will definitely ask about that. Um, And there's another guy involved in the protests who wore, similarly wore a um, T-Rex costume, like a silly T-Rex with like a big head. And he also got elected. So these people are involved in rewriting the constitution. Um, The actual elections were a really major shock to the political establishment here. So right now they have a billionaire right-wing president. His name is Sebastian Sebastian Pinera. And he is currently, the lower house just impeached him because he um, was caught red-handed in the Pandora Papers, basically doing some dirty dealings, selling some resources uh, through a shell company that his children owned in the British Virgin Islands, like two other Chileans. So basically, like, super corrupt stuff. He got impeached, but um, he's not going to be removed. It's similar to what we did with Trump, where we, like, wanted to do it, but, like, we all know that they're not going to boot him out. So, um he he actually can't run again. He's term limited. So he's not running. He's not one of the candidates that we will see on the ballot on Sunday. There are six major candidates. Uh, what is most likely to happen is that the top two will go to a runoff because if you do not get 50% or more in round one of the election, then the top two candidates go to a runoff. Um, the two candidates that we're hearing a lot about on the ground right now, um, one is named uh, Gabriel Boric. He is sort of a Bernie type. He's like lefty, you know, not, it's funny because here it's actually an issue for some people that he's not left enough, but he is, yeah. you know, a lefty democratic socialist kind of guy. Uh, he's 36 years old, very young. So that's another concern for some people. They think he's too young. Um, and then the other major candidate who may go to the runoff and people are really freaking out about it. Um, his name is Kast, K-A-S-T. Uh, he's a full-on fascist. I mean, he is really right-wing. There was another right-winger that was sort of teed up to be the successor to Pinera, and he lost a ton of support, and everyone is kind of gravitating toward the extreme. So, so um, real quick, just if the Constitution yeah. changes and it becomes more reformed and, and progressive, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, um, and say this cost guy, I mean, how do those two things play together? So that's something that's a big concern for people. Um, so right now, as the process is set up now, uh, once the deliberations of the Constitutional Convention are finished, which should be early next year to mid next year, they may end up taking an extension, the entire country will get to vote on whether to accept the new Constitution. So super democratic process. We'd love to see it. Um, obviously, there are concerns that if a super far right fascist who like wants to eliminate like the department of women and wants like basically like doesn't want to (laughs) yeah um doesn't want gay marriage to be legal anymore and is uh incredibly obsessed with immigration as seeing all these Mm -hmm. fascists actually the thing here apparently is not a wall but a trench he thinks they can build a giant trench around the entire chilean border totally bananas um but so, yeah, I think there's concern about, like, how much power he'll have to potentially interfere in the process. As of right now, it's much too early to say. You know, he's not even elected. 
Um, but as we know, fascists do not play by the rules. So if there ends up being a lefty constitution and it's approved by the public, we will just have to be watching closely to see, you know, whether he or his allies are claiming electoral fraud. I'm sure that will doubtless happen no matter what they vote on. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I mean, it's a concern, but it's too early really to say what the, how that's going to play out. Super fascinating. Janelle, do you have any questions? Um, no, I just I think it's important to note that it's a it's a very dynamic time right now in the hemisphere. We have Chile, we had uh, Nicaragua uh, last week, um, and you know several um, uh, other Latin American countries right now trying to reassert um, uh, themselves on their own political terms. Um, so I think it's really important for progressives or leftists to be paying attention um, because you know that that will surely incite some sort of imperial. Uh, backlash, mm-hmm, uh, right. you know, from our own country, but it's right. really important to stay apprised uh, so we can right. remain in solidarity. The one thing the leftists really need to be aware of, I think, and this is so not covered by the press at all, we need to look really closely at when resor- when and where resources are nationalized and right. when and where there is land reform, meaning That's like right. a redistribution of land. Um, anytime you hear of those two things happening, it's very likely alarm that bell should go off. <laughs> yeah, it's very likely that the US will then take it upon themselves right. to intervene and say things, you know, they weren't above board. Um, and if we go back to the installation of Pinochet, uh, we now know that the CIA was heavily, heavily involved in destabling, destabilizing the Allende government. And it was because of those two reasons. That's he wanted to, he was nationalizing copper and he was, um, uh, Pushing which, forward with land reform. Which is crazy. I mean, we could do a whole other segment on this another day because there are no rule. I mean, you, you know, whether it was Chile or whether it was Guatemala, in those cases, it became very violent when when folks did that. But then there are other parts of the global south where same exact things happen and they let their their neoliberal guy or, or not even neoliberal, honestly. Some of these people were actually like act real center left. Yeah. Um, folks, you know, move forward with, because these were not, these were not progressive concepts even then. These were center-left concepts of the time. This was far-right CIA, you know, sometimes involving themselves and sometimes not. But this is a whole other topic for another day, which I would love to, to re-examine if, if we want to. Yeah, as a, as, yeah, you know, I'll just say one more thing about that. You know, looking at it through the lens not of left and right, but as, um, you know, colonialism versus uh, neocolonialism and the sort of feeling of ownership that colonial states still had and have over former colonial states. So, I mean, the idea that they can just say, well, we're going to redistribute our land. Now we're, we're going to say we own our resources. Like all of this is very defiant to the colonial, former colonial uh, master states. You know, they're just I would like, also well, say you know, that I would just want to caveat that and say yeah. the capital interests that are aligned with the colonial o- overlords, like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the U.S. cannot countenance, uh, you know, Bolivia, uh, you know, nationalizing uh, their lithium reserves because, mm-hmm. well, we have a whole, right. we have a whole, right. you know, electric, you know, renewable future to stake on it. And, you know, that would hurt the likes of Tesla and yeah. Apple right. and all of these other great, enormous multinationals that which even goes back to the materials. Which so. even goes back to the question of to what degree are these industries even independent of our government? Right. right? right. Well, we it was, it's it's. I mean, it was the same thing when it was banana farms. It was the same yeah, same exact thing. Right. Yeah, it's just different industries. Okay, so let's shift just a little bit because uh, back in in our country, um, where Virginia is from, uh, folks are obsessed with this labor shortage, supposed labor shortage in the U.S. and. Uh, MSNBC is discussing it day in and day out. 
because they think it's a crisis. I mean, we have we already have a supply chain issue, which folks are aware of, but that's not necessarily related to the labor shortage. It has to do with backups from COVID. Some of it has to do with shipping, and a lot of these ship companies aren't weren't prepared to be able to ship. And then, you know, on a more on a micro level, even just the resources, you know, in some countries where they're producing things, because we live in a very globalized society, you might have multiple parts coming from different parts of the world. Some who are still dealing with COVID in a very oh. extreme way. Um, it's almost like the vaccination should be available to everybody. So let's play this clip from MSNBC. So we know there are significant labor shortages uh, here in the U.S. And retailers, the big ones, Walmart, Target, uh, they've been raising pay, offering new benefits and more work hours uh, for employees to combat these shortages uh, and also while dealing with demand spikes. How do these measures impact uh, both investors and consumers? Well, it sounds as though there are help-wanted signs everywhere you look in the U.S. And what we heard from Walmart and Target CEOs, interestingly, this week when they delivered their earnings, is that they're not actually too worried about hiring. Walmart hired nearly 200,000 workers in Q3 ahead of the holiday season. A number of those jobs have come in the supply chain area as they try to make sure that they aren't disrupted too much by the supply chain challenges that could persist. The CEO also added that back when the stimulus dollars started to go away, the hiring situation changed fast. We saw people come back, he said, and in a matter of weeks, we were being back to being fully staffed. So it sounds like Walmart is actually doing okay. Meanwhile, you are seeing the likes of Macy's plan to raise hourly wages to $15, also uh, begin to offer college tuition uh, assistance to try to win workers, also Starbucks and Costco raising the wages that they are offering. So clearly there is competition for these workers. Uh, putting it all together, retailers are expected to hire between 500,000 and 665,000 seasonal workers this year. That compares to 486,000 that were hired in 2020, Jonathan. So many interesting storylines to follow. So this is really interesting to me because, um, you know, you look at the, the organizing that's happening at, at Starbucks uh, in Buffalo right now, or Western New York, really. And um, I remember my first response was, this is, this is so fascinating because, this is a company that has provided healthcare, uh, you know, a, a, a higher minimum wage than most companies in America, and you know, free education to like a certain you know ASU, which is, you know, Howard Schultz is a complete jerk, but like that was something that was really different than most uh, most companies that are not you know high level like finance where they repay you or a law firm where they repay your, your bills. Even with that, though, the types of organizing that's happening there is a little bit different than organizing happening in, in, in auto plants and Amazon and that it's a, it's a younger organizer, newer to the workforce, not everybody, but the actual organizers. And so it, it, they're going in being like, we deserve more. And what we're seeing now is, is these companies are now showing you that they could have always done this and they're now using it as a form of like labor washing or, or union. I don't know what, it, I mean, Janelle, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? So this is, I, uh, I have many thoughts on this, and several of them will include some shameless plugs with some interview guests that I've had recently on. Um, so speaking of, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had um, Alex Press from Jacobin uh, was one of my guests. And the way that she um, framed the issue of the A, labor shortages, and B, uh, more appreciately, uh, uh, kind of reinvigorated uh, union activity is that what we saw throughout the pandemic was that 
you know, a worker's relationship to their to their job and to their boss, um, particularly for essential workers, uh, was was changed profoundly in that workers saw that, you know what, we are, you know, the boss has no issue with uh, using us for grist or fodder to just keep the wheels turning. And in this context of a pandemic, that um, that could mean that I get terribly sick or die. And once you and once the mask is off and you're 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 conscious or aware that your boss is okay with you dying, you you're not going to be the same. Uh, like that that's just that's just how that works. Um so the so there's two things happening right now uh that I agree with Alex in the way that she presented them. Um a lot on one hand, uh you know, many workers are responding to the incentives of uh, increased wages um, on an individual level, or if they are trying to register their, their discontent with their working positions, you know, they're leaving, they're walking off the job. Uh, that's still a very individualized, unorganized articulation of a labor politic. Um, while on the other hand, there is increased um, uh, uh, union uh, organization, formation, interest, activity, because I think now we are, you know, this, this, these generations of workers, you know, millennials and, and maybe older Gen Zs, having seen the destruction, I think, of the 2008 uh, crisis, you know, it's uh, the, the, the jig is up, if you will. Like everyone, I think, basically more or less has an idea that if we're going to make some demands or be a countervailing force against capital, we're going to have to do it together because, you know, they can pick off, you know, people one at a time and say, oh, you know, mm -hmm. you're upset, you know, I'll give you a couple bucks more. And, you know, that that will placate some people. But at the end of the day, you know, this clip they were talking about, all the seasonal workers um, that they're hiring, these are time box jobs that, you know, they, they can afford to, you know, pay these people $25, $30, whatever, because they're working for like two or three months around the clock, abusing their bodies to be able to meet these insane deadlines um, to get things on the shelf. So yes, they can afford to do it. Uh, so we shouldn't take our eye off the ball about the short blip in terms of a, a higher percentage of you know profits temporarily being given to workers because long-term, we know that capital is disciplined enough to be able to Claw, claw back these uh, benefits or in mm -hmm. higher wages uh, and or, you know, just completely crapify working conditions even more. So I don't I don't think that I don't think that this story, particularly in the mainstream press, is being um, covered with um, the precision. I, I don't want to say nuance, but the precision that it needs to be covered in because um, because we're still because capital is still holding all of the cards and right. even with increased labor. Um, uh, interest and activity, or, uh, or sorry, or union interest and activity. Yeah. Um, that's still that, that's still um, as we're seeing with John Deere. Like that's still not a, a lock. Like you know, capital is able to yeah. reach down into municipal operations and you know change the stoplights. That was one thing that exactly. was happening at one of the the John Deere wow. things. So that it hurts the picket. It, it hurts the picketer's ability to like maintain a picket line because you know wow. they're changing the street yeah. signs and so so Jesus let's Christ. keep our they did it with Amazon over. also yeah yeah that's right Amazon and um Alabama that's right. that's right Julie what are your thoughts on this well I mean nothing is shocking um but that still is shocking somehow you know like it's just so that how intertwined our political system is with the interests of big capital I mean it's sort of what we were just talking about with like well, to what degree is the U.S. as an entity actually separate from certain global corporate actors because it's totally beholden to their priorities? Yep, because right. if you look at like um, one reason that I really insist on calling this country an oligarchy because it is an oligarchy is just that 
Uh, you really can't argue against the reality if you look at the polls, if you look at the polls of what people want in this country, it doesn't match up with the representation we have. So something is going wrong in mm-hmm. the process where most people, including most Republicans, believe in climate change now. The Congress that we have is totally unrepresentative of the public. So that means it's not democratic. It is oligarchical. So yes, I mean, corporate actors have so much power that any sort of organizing and any sort of strides forward, they're really impressive, they're really brave, and they're constantly, you know, one wrong move from falling into a massive pit of fire. So like, I I, I think you're correct Mm -hmm. in that, like, it's great that workers are starting to be more aware that they do have power, um, but it is fragile, especially in a country where, you know, people are just so disposable. Right. And it's, so, I, and I wanted to just, it's fragile. And I, I think it's still encouraging that there, there is this, um, this, you know, heightened consciousness and awareness of, you know, labor power, you know, proper. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, this is something that we're going to have to, this is a skill and a method of organizing mm-hmm. and solidarity that's going to have to be practiced. And, you know, there will be failures, but practiced and agitated for again and again, until we are able to hopefully reconstitute, uh, like a very militant labor and, and be aware of what tactics are coming. So um, on that note, uh, in New York, there is a, an effort right now to pressure Governor Kathy Hochul to increase, to end the, excuse me, sub-minimum wage uh, for, for, for many workers who are servers and rely on tips. Um, let's play this clip from a more perfect union. It was like, which one of your parents are white, your mom or your dad? And I was like, excuse me? And he's like, well, you can't just be black. I mean, I see the hair, but you can't be just black because you have manners and you're articulate. You go in the back, you suck it up, just feed them and get out of here. Just make their drinks and get them out of here. I remember this one situation. It was pretty bad. And the customer had told me to take my mask down. And if they didn't, then I wouldn't be able to eat tonight. And I'm like, so the customer already knows that they dictate how much we walk home with. I've been grabbed inappropriately. I've been told dirty, all sorts of things, like phone numbers instead of tips and things like that. Managers, like when you talk to them, usually will say like, you should be flattered. I have been catcalled. I've had married men ask me for my number. I have been touched before. You just have to keep going. And the abuse becomes normal after a while. They're used to, okay, I might get touched on today just because like they feel like they can and I feel like I have to because that's how I'm getting paid. You pick up the weekend shifts, you pick up the night shifts. You can maybe make $20 an hour per se, that's with the tips. But if I just take weekdays, probably not up to $10 an hour. On a week to week, I expect to make at least half of my rent in order to survive. And for the last four weeks, I haven't been able to even come close to that. I'm still scratching, trying to grasp that straw to figure out how I'm gonna make it. My week to week is completely in the air. I don't know what to expect. So this is not just a pandemic issue. They're they're touching on two things here. This is something that's always existed in the workforce. I mean, I can speak from my personal experience. I was in the service industry, the hospitality, I'll call it service because I wasn't in hospitality. I didn't go to school for hospitality. I was in service. <laughs> I was, you know, trying to pay my rent. Um, and I had many, many uh, serving jobs simultaneously. And in some cases, I'm sure we all have our stories. But as she's talking, I remember one time I was working for a sushi bar, a steakhouse, and then one of these like mega whatever it is, like nightclub restaurant 
blah, 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 all sorts of things happening at once. And it was brand new. And I remember they were, they were like, you know, they make you go through this insane training. Like you show up, you have to dress up, they screen you. And, and it's totally physical, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's a physical like examination. And then you have to talk to them and you, pre- and you know, they're not paying you for that. And then you go and you go through the training, they're not paying you for that. And then it's all about you're in early because if you're in early, those are the people who stay for the long term. But what you may know from a restaurant when it it's 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 you know you're you're starting is you don't always have clients. So for like four months at this place, I was coming home with five bucks a night, which is why I had to keep the other jobs. And I mean, we all have these experiences. I'm, I'm not sure how if you've worked in service, but you know, when I was young and I didn't know how to speak up and I didn't know my worth, and there wasn't a labor movement, you know, that's that was coming back, but. And on top of all that, you get slime balls who are constantly hitting on you and throwing you cash. And if you, you know, they think that that they can buy you essentially your attention. And this is so, so, so powerful and had no progress under Governor Cuomo whatsoever. So it's interesting that they're now pushing Governor Hochul, who, you know, at least the angle of compassion might relate to her. I'm not sure. And she's obviously running for elections. So, I mean, Janelle, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. Yeah, I was, I was actually, I was hoping that you were going to another of 500 shameless plugs. I was hoping you were going to talk about your days in service. Uh, Nomi Key's uh, episode will be out in two weeks, the week after Thanksgiving. So oh, be sure to tune in for that. Um, but it was, it was really interesting. When I saw this uh, on the on the rundown, I was like, I was like, oh, I know these guys because I I, uh, I interviewed Maricela. She works with an organization. It's a nonprofit uh, called One Fair Wage, and they work to eradicate the subminimum wage uh, for service workers, primarily in the restaurant industry. And I wish I knew the stat um, off the top of my head, but I think it might be there's like ten or thirteen states that do that do have a you know a a an actual I guess livable mini- minimum wage for service workers. But this is a really important issue. For many reasons, it's not. It is, of course, it is a labor issue, uh, and but it's also connected to to many other things. It is a it is a gender issue, particularly because a lot of service workers who get the worst in terms of uh, abuse on the job are are women in these establishments. Uh, it's also a childcare issue. A lot of women are. From, I remember from the interview I did with Maricela, one of the anecdotes she told me from one of her service jobs was uh, at one particular place she was working, there was uh, another woman who was a, who was a mother of a, of a young child. And, you know, you don't, A, you can't always afford childcare, so you're always kind of scrambling to see who can take the kid. And sometimes you have to move your shift to be able to, to, to make the childcare thing work. But this particular woman was pretty regularly sexually propositioned by another coworker um, in order to, you know, kind of like horse trade um, uh, shifts in order to accommodate childcare. It's so 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 the service industry, I think, is ground zero for where we should be focusing. One one of the main areas we should be focusing um, as a left to organize, um, uh, particularly for you know livable livable wages, eradicate uh, the abuse that that occurs because of the, the the power dynamic inherent in, you know, you are, you know, people say right. you are serving me. And that puts people in a mindset of, you know, I, I should be able to do whatever I want to you and you should just take it. And that's not how any any worker anywhere in the world uh, should be treated. Um, but uh, but One Fair Wage is doing really great work organizing service workers. And, and in particular, I, I will give them a, just kudos and a plug. During 2020, remember at the beginning when, you know, everything was just 
you know, calamitous, awful, you know, the, the, the lockdowns and, you know, that put a lot of restaurant workers out of work. And a lot of them actually were not able to, depending on what state they were in, a lot of them were not able to apply for uh, unemployment because right. their official wage dis- was not high enough to apply for unemployment. And, you know, that, you know, that paltry little $1,200 check uh, didn't get to everyone. But right. welfare wage, they were able to, like, in a, in a cinch, they, I think they raised something, some maybe around like 10 or $20 million, and they distributed um, uh, relief and, funds directly exactly. to service workers. And a lot of workers, particularly those that are undocumented, um, but a lot of workers, you know, were reached out to them and said, this is the only support I'm able to get. Uh, like, this is the only way I've been able to, you know, b- buy groceries for a right. month. But they're doing really great work uh, organizing. So so we, we, we got to wrap shortly. We have about a minute left, guys. Um, just want to add one thing. If you haven't checked it out already, we've done a few segments with Rep Rab, who talks about how service work is 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 a legacy of slavery. Um, yeah. Julia, final thoughts on this. So I'm... <laughs> I'm also former service industry. I was a bartender full-time for six years. So this issue is very close to my heart. I think there's a lot of things that need to change. Like for one, I think bartenders need to be unionized because a lot of the issues that come up when we're talking about the way we're paid um, and tips versus no tips, that's actually a management issue. So when you say like, well, I have to be nice to this person or, you know, I'm not going to get paid. You should have a manager who says, no, it's time for you to leave. And I did have that. I was lucky enough. I mean, I obviously was harassed, all of this stuff, all this stuff that comes along with the job and it shouldn't come along with the job. But if there was someone that was dangerous or scary, I did have the support of my manager, but that was really a one-off, you know, like you never know who you're working for. You need to have those um, sort of union representation to be able to take these issues and establish boundaries in the bar. Because whether you're getting paid $15 an hour or whether you're getting paid tips or whatever you're getting paid, these harassment issues aren't going to be affected by that. Like, at right. the end of the day, like, you're still going to get harassed. The other thing I was going to say, though, is that although I am for, um, you know, a one-third weight, I'm, I'm for people making $15 an hour. I also am for the tip system. I, I believe in tips. The reason I'm for tips is that I've seen people like single moms, people with no college degrees, able to walk out of a bar with $1,000 on a shift. I mean, it's just the same same thing with like dancers, strippers. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of back and forth, honestly, between dancers, the dancing community and bartending community um, and strippers the yep. same way. Like they don't want to get rid of their tips. Like they would not want to dance for a whole night and walk out with like $45. Right. Like if, if I'm working, cause I've worked shifts that, you know, are 10 hour shifts, 12 hour, 12 hour shifts. I do not want to walk out of that shift with a couple hundred bucks. I want to a grand, which is a thing that will happen in a super busy bar. The other thing about it is like the intensity of working on a high volume bar, a busy bar on a weekend night where you see like waves of people coming at you, hundreds of people who want drinks and you're going fast, 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 as fast as you can. The big comforting thought you have in your head is like, well, I'm about to make bank as opposed to like, if you're just working for minimum wage, you're like, I wish yes. these people would fucking leave. <laughs> so no, like, no, no, that's, I always and the turnover isn't as, it's not as, yeah, like, like yeah. fair wage and also give us the tips because like it, yeah. it is one of the few ways where people don't consider it profit sharing, but at the end of yeah. the day, the more you sell, the more you make. And like, uh, there's really no other industry where you can walk out with 18% of what your boss made that night. And even though there's some p- shitty people who don't tip and there's some people who over tip, I can tell you from years and years and years and years of doing this with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of customers, 
it comes out in the wash. It's about 18%. You walk out with 18%. Some days it's, some days it's 12. Sometimes you get incredible industry regulars and it's 23. It's usually about 18%. It's, it's a super complicated conversation. Obviously we can talk about it more. Um, some state, some cities have really fought it off restaurant industries. I'll leave with one final thought. If the restaurant industry is against paying fair wages, maybe they should look at their rent and go after the rent first. Because I have a lot of friends in this industry who say we can't afford the labor. Well, then you know what? Maybe you should tackle the big guys. Your rent is way too damn high. Yeah. Gotta go, guys. Sure. Love you. Super grateful for having you. Have a great weekend, everybody. Check out the committee program. They're doing a special on Chile, the elections in Chile. Yes. And yes. Uh, check out our show on Tuesday. Tuesday night, uh, TNS Live, right here and over at Rockfin. Thanks, Janelle. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Brad, behind the scenes. Bye. Stay in solidarity. Bye. The No Mickey Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Mickey Show. Continues.